If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them to the book of Esther, chapter 9 and 10 is where we will be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow the black Bible from the seats in front of you. And uh, the ninth chapter of Esther will be found on page 415 of that Bible. And today we come to the end of the book of Esther, and I hope in some small measure that you have gotten a a fraction of what I have gotten out of reading and studying this book. It has been a wonderful book to be able to preach through. I have been um, very encouraged by uh, the study that I have done in this book, and I pray that that has also helped and aided you in your love of Jesus and worshiping him. It has been said that all good things must come to an end, and so we also must end here today. Jesus will come one day and put that statement right, but nevertheless, until he does, today we are done with the book of Esther. So we are going to read through the last two chapters of Esther, chapter 9 and chapter 10, and we will spend our time today sort of summing up the book as we we are wrapping up not only the, the reading of the book today, but also the study of the book today. Uh, so we are going to uh, very quickly, I know you, some of you are looking at your handouts and you're freaking out just a little bit because, you know, you want to be able to prepare Easter dinner before Saturday. So uh, don't, don't worry, we're, these, these points will go through quickly. Uh, many of them are old. Um, they're, they're not new. We are summing up the book, and so uh, we will get through everything fairly quickly. The chapters before us are somewhat odd, and you'll notice that they're somewhat odd simply by looking at the length of chapter 9 and the shortness of chapter 10. The only reason I mention that is to tell you again that many times it is helpful to simply ignore chapter divisions in Scripture. Let the context of Scripture kind of tell you where the breaks are. Um, It seems like this guy, whoever was putting down the chapter divisions, just said, oh, I wanted 10 chapters. That's right. And so three verses before the end, he just plopped down another chapter. Uh, Why he made nine so long and 10 so short, I don't know, but that's what we have. It doesn't matter to us today because we're just going to go through both of them. Secondly... The book of Esther is an incredibly sort of vivid and dynamic book. It's an amazingly well-told story. It's full of drama. But then as we come to these last two chapters, we're going to find that all of that has kind of been flattened. It's more of a report of history, and this bears out the the drama is all but gone. We, We don't know of any of the major battles that have happened, any of the fights that happened, but it's sort of already finished. And this is just a reporting of the effects of the faithful work of Esther and Mordecai. So as we go to these chapters and we are reminded of these things, let us see what we can learn about God from chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Esther. If you would read with me in your Bibles. Esther chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples." All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and all the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all of the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, as they, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. 
and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parshmatha, Parshmata and Erishai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in the matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. 
letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther was confirmed, excuse me, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his might and power, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of our God. Now that we have finished the story, the story is complete. What do we learn about God from this little book that utterly fails to mention him much in every way? We have many points to mention as we wrap up this book, so we should get to it. The first is the foremost. It is the one that looms over the entirety of the book, and that is simply God's absence. God's absence. God is not here. If anyone knows anything about the book of Esther, it is that God is not named, known, spoken of in this book. There isn't even foreign gods that are spoken of that he can really stand against, although we sense that that is also happening behind the scenes. This fact looms large over the entirety of the book, and actually it's going to make an impact on almost everything that we say, even today, that God has an impact even when he's not named there, that neither the title of God nor the name of God nor any other spiritual dimension is even brought forward in the book of Esther. There is a term that people who write for a living, either literature or screenplays or just plays, use to describe something sort of miraculous that happens. It's called deus ex machina, and it means the god of the machine. And when you have a hero or a heroine and an author is trying to heighten the dramatic tension, oftentimes they will put them in situations of which they cannot extricate themselves. They cannot get out. They don't know of a way out. They can't logically find a way out. And in order to make it really dramatic, the author paints it in such a way that you also can't figure a way that they're going to get out of this. And you, you shrug your shoulders. Oh, how, is they, how are they going to get out of this one? And then something miraculous happens. Something brilliant happens. Something accidental happens. Something happens. And the hero or the heroine are allowed simply to get out of the situation. All of a sudden, they're free. All of a sudden, the sword no longer hangs over their heads. This intervention is called deus ex machina. It's the God of the machine. It's a God who is unnoted, he's unspoken of, but nevertheless, that God delivers the hero. And in most writing, it is a sign not of good things, but of bad things. It is a sign of an author who worked themselves into a corner and couldn't get out, and so they just imagined a magical portal by which they were going to make the heroes live. And while in other writings, the God of the machine indicates bad writing, it is the entire purpose of the book of Esther. The people in Esther were put in an impossible situation. They had the mightiest man of the mightiest kingdom have a law written that could not be revoked, that they were all to be destroyed. How were they going to get out of such a situation? 
through a series of coincidences, the God of the machine delivers them. And as you read through the book of Esther, it is clear that it's not just coincidence. It's clear that it's not just things that happen in the world, but that God is working behind the scenes to deliver them. That is actually the entire point. Even in his absence, his presence is felt. You cannot get away from this God. Even where he is not, he is still at that point the great I am. This is not a small point for us, but it's the overriding point of Esther and frankly, even of our faith in God today. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Friends, a lot of your life will be lived not seeing God. But Esther wants to point you to the fact that he is still working to do everything that he has promised behind the scenes. And that brings us to our second point, which is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is often described in sort of personal terms. He is faithful to me. He is good to me. His promises have been true to me. That's good, right, and true. There's nothing wrong with speaking like that, and everyone here should be able to say that God is faithful to us. But that is not the most basic faithfulness that God displays throughout his word. The most basic faithfulness that God has is a faithfulness first and foremost to his word. The reason why God is faithful to you is because he is, in some sense, faithful to himself. And again, this book shows that he is going to be faithful to his word. Behind all of this sits Haman the Agagite, as we have talked about Agag being the king of the Amalekites, who was spared by Saul when he ought not have been spared. The reason why that was a problem was because God had foretold long centuries before that the Amalekites were to be destroyed forever. As the Israelites were coming out of the Red Sea and going through the wilderness, they were tired and they were weak. They had a million plus people and they had stragglers in the back. And Amalek did not attack them in the front. He did not attack them where they were strong, even though they were weak. He attacked the back lines, taking them where they were weakest. God saw this as a rank bit of unfaithfulness. And so he told Moses in Exodus 17, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. But as the years went by, that promise remained unfulfilled. The Amalekites continued to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites, continually popping up, continually annoying them, continually killing their people. Saul arose, seemingly to put an end to it, but Saul failed, showing mercy to Agag, keeping the plunder for himself. So here, when the line of Haman is killed, where his sons are raised on the gallows and their bodies desecrated just like his was, Esther effectively does what Saul refused to do. And while we can read that and look at it as though Esther is fulfilling Saul's calling, what we should rather do is look at it and see God being faithful to his word to accomplish what he had always said would be done. Amalek's memory, his line, his lineage, is wiped out from under heaven. God's faithfulness is not shown simply through his mighty demonstrations of glory and of judgment, but through the actions of his people 
and his actions through his people being faithful to his word. God is true and always true to his word. We would do well to remember that. As we go through our days, as good things happen to us, as bad things happen to us, as we go through times of trial and testing, as tumult and war happened around us, you remember that God is carrying out all things according to the purpose of his will. Our God is faithful to his word. And you can trust that. You can live in faith that that is true. You can bank on it. When you cannot feel him, when you cannot see him, when you cannot hear him, God is yet being faithful to his word. God's faithfulness gives way then to point three, which is God's mercy. We've noted before that both Esther and Mordecai are not, strictly speaking, the most brilliant pieces of ethic or moral philosophy that you would ever want. They each have problems. Mordecai has a couple of different problems. It's at least sketchy and unethical, unmoral, immoral to, to allow Esther to be taken into the king. And, and he tells her not to speak of her kin or her kindred, and it seems very odd. And Esther, Esther kind of... We don't really want to implicate her. We know that she was more of a victim than anything else, but she appears to be willing in a good number of things. And Then we go to the middle of the book. All that happens early. And in the middle of the book, Esther is this shining example of wisdom in action. But then we come to verse 13 here. And there's at least a bit of hesitation in saying that what she does here is good. In verse 13, she's already heard that 500 men in the city of Susa have been killed with the sword. The Jews have had victory over their enemies. The ten sons of Haman have been killed. And again, the king comes before her and says, what is your request? And she says this, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. It's well and good that the ten sons of Haman get hanged on the gallows, that they are desecrated, showing that they are accursed by God. That's fine. What I question is whether or not it is right for Esther to then secondarily ask for another day of destruction of people. The edict only allowed for one day. That was the day on which God gave them victory, and the victory was thorough. And yet she asks for more, to let more blood, 300 more men die. Now, perhaps in all of this, you might look at that and say, I don't really see a problem with that. They were clearly enemies of the Jews. They deserve to die. I, I can understand that. I, I can see where arguments can be made there. My point in all of this is simply to look at this and say, there are issues with both Esther and Mordecai. The heroes of this book are not pure white as driven snow. And the reason why that's important is because it's really easy to look at the book of Esther, especially when you have such an evil character in Haman and such a a brilliant character in Esther and think that what's going on is God simply delivering those who are good. God simply delivering those who are kind or wise or smart or know how to ingratiate themselves to people in power. You You can create a number of scenarios in which God is doing something here in the book of Esther that he does not mean to be doing. Why is Haman destroyed, and why are Esther and Mordecai and the Jews relieved? Why are the Jews here in the first place? The Jews are here in the first place 
because they failed utterly and miserably to keep the commands of God. They are here because they're not righteous. They are here because they were just like the rest of the nations around them. They were taken out of their land and and utterly moved away from the temple while the temple was destroyed because they weren't good. Why does God then have mercy on them? It is not because they are better. It is not because they are righteous. They were warned about this all the way back when they were taking the promised land. In Deuteronomy 9, Moses warned them, Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust out the Canaanites from before you, it is because my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. They were wicked. The Jews were wicked. They continually showed that they were wicked. Why? Because God has mercy on those he has mercy. And God has compassion on those he has compassion. The Jews did not earn God's mercy. The Jews did not win God's mercy. He freely gives it to them. He works for his people, not because his people are especially good, but because his people are specifically his. Friends, let it be known that God saves by his mercy. He doesn't save you by your might. He doesn't save you by your work. He doesn't save you because he sees something wonderful in you. He doesn't save you because you're perfect, sinless, or holy. He doesn't just bring you out of the mire, but he forgives you. He shows you mercy simply because he is compassionate and kind. This then brings us to point four, which is the counterpoint to God's mercy, and that is God's judgment. God's judgment is also on display. As a matter of fact, as you read through Scripture, it is hard to find moments where God's mercy is not on display directly next to his judgment. His judgment and his mercy seemingly go hand in hand. He was merciful to Noah, but he judged the rest of the world. He was merciful to Israel, but he judges Egypt. He was merciful to to Israel, but he judges Canaan. He has mercy here on the Jews, but he judges the sons of Agag. God is merciful to you, but he lays the cross on Christ. This is a real extension of the blessings and the curses of the gospel as it's found in Genesis 12. The blessing God gives to Abraham, the promises that he gives there to him. He tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul, amazingly, doesn't call this a hint of the gospel. He doesn't call this like a foreshadowing of the gospel. He doesn't say that this is is like a, a bit of the gospel. Paul says, this is the gospel. God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham here. That those who bless Abraham, and by extension, those who bless his seed, will indeed be blessed. But everyone who stands against them will be cursed. Those who strain against Abraham, those who strain against his offspring, will never know the blessing of God. That offspring was not forever 
meant to be an entire people, but there is always one offspring. There is always one seed promised and awaiting the fulfillment of that, and that is no less than Jesus Christ. Those who bless the man Jesus Christ will be blessed by him. Those who praise his name will be praised by him. But those who curse him, those who deny him, those who reduce him to nothing more than a human agent trying to teach well, they will be cut off. There will be nothing but judgment for them. The reason why the sons of Agag, the sons of Haman, the reason why they were destroyed was not simply because they were wicked and evil. It wasn't that. It was that. But it's not just that. The reason why they were destroyed is because they cursed Abraham's line. They sought to destroy it. They sought to stand against it. They sought to stand against the kingdom of Israel. And as such, they will forever be cursed. All others who will likewise forego the mercy of God that is in Jesus Christ if they don't understand that Jesus is truly the blessed one of God, the very anointed one, the Messiah, the blessed one who has done all things well, completing everything that the Father requires of him, even dying on a cross there and there alone by understanding him as the source of all that is good and true, can you truly find mercy? Outside of Jesus, outside of the blessing of Abraham, there is no mercy there is only death and desecration. There is only the end of the sons of Haman. There is only true and right judgment over sin. That brings us to number five, God's victory. Here, finally, we get what was said in the book's own reason for its existence, the festival and the feasts of Purim. The Jews have a wonderful way of writing, and the book of Esther might be the height of writing ironically. This book is filled with irony from the first to the last. And the fact that they named this festival Purim is at the top of that list. After all, the lots that were cast were not for the Jews. It's not as though Jews who knew lots, who had lots, who cast them. We find this other places in Scripture. They cast lots for other things. But they didn't cast the lots here. It's not as though the Jews were saying, on what day will you give us our salvation, Lord? And they cast lots. Or how should we avoid this, Lord? And they cast lots. No, no, no. The lots that were cast were cast for their destruction. Haman was seeking the advice of the fates or the advice of destiny or the advice of the gods as to which day would be best to destroy the Jews. It's... Hilarious to me that they would then call these the days of the lot casting. These are the days of Purim that we will remember. We will remember when you tried to destroy us by casting lots. We will remember when you tried to seek the advice of the fates or the, the advice of destiny or the advice of the gods against us and when it was utterly turned back on you. The irony of this is made all the more better in that the word Purim isn't even a Hebrew word. It's a loan word. It comes directly from Persia. It comes from other countries. It's not their word. You, you catch this in chapter 9, although it's, it's missed in English. It's caught in chapter 9 when it says, at the end of verse 24, he sought to destroy them and he cast poor, that is, cast lots. The reason why that is cast lots is in parentheses is because it's telling the people who are Hebrew what that word means because they don't know what it means. It's not their language. 
they've got a perfectly good word for lots. It's called goral. It's a perfectly good word, but they don't name it the days of goral. No, no, they name it the days of Purim. This is a subtle, but I think an incredibly effective dig at their enemies. Haman, what what was the name of those things that you cast that were supposed to destroy us? What what were the names of the the things that were going to give the the powerful men around here all the power over us, that, that were going to turn the fates and the gods against us? What was the name of those? Purim? Yeah, that's what we'll call these days. We'll call them Purim because they were so mighty and powerful over us. God has victory over all of these gods. God has victory over the fates. He has victory over all things that would stand against him. Nothing can thwart his will. God is victorious over them all. For as the Proverbs say, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Sixth, let us consider God's servant. We've noted before that Esther is something of a shadow of Jesus. She unified and is unified even in her royalty with her people. She symbolically dies, I think in a way, in fasting only to rise again on the third day and put on royalty. She mediates for her people before the power of a king. She even lays her own life on the line for them. And all of this, we have a foreshadowing of what Jesus himself will do. But here, we're reminded ever so subtly of another way in which Esther likely is a picture of the Christ who was to come. In Esther 9.29, we read this. Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail. She's the daughter of Abihail. We're reminded as soon as we read that of when we were first introduced to her. The fact that she is not just this Persian queen, but she is indeed a Jewish Persian queen. Of all the people in this book, all the names have meaning. Most of them have Persian names. There's only a handful of Jewish names that actually find their way into the book, and most of them are talking about older relatives. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. Mordecai is a Persian name. Ironically and somewhat shockingly, it likely means that he is a man of Marduk, which was a Babylonian god. Esther is likely also just a transliteration of a name of a Babylonian goddess named Ishtar, who was the goddess of war and of love. Fitting for Esther, because she becomes queen out of love, and she destroys her enemies with war. But that is not the only time that we hear a name for Esther. Out of all the names that are mentioned, only one person is given two names, and that is Esther. The first time we meet her, we don't meet her as Esther, we meet her as Hadassah. That's her Jewish name. We're reminded then in the 15th verse of the second chapter that this Hadessah is the daughter of Abihail. Here at the ending of the book, we're reminded again that she is not just a Persian queen of great influence, but she is a Jewish Persian queen. She needs to be both of these things. She must be thoroughly Persian to be the queen, to have all the power of the queen, to have access to the king. She must also, however, be Jewish. She needs to be Jewish, that she can identify with her people. She is both Persian and she is Jewish. We wouldn't want to say that these are exactly two different natures, but we would want to say that there are at least two different identities found in her. Identities that I'm sure that the Jews found hard to reconcile together. 
How can one live faithfully as a Persian and one live faithfully as a Jew? But for God to save, he needed Esther to be precisely both of these things. A Jewish Persian queen. The same is true in a much more real and full sense for Jesus, who had two different and seemingly incompatible natures. He was both God, who was fully divine, God of God, light of light, the very and only begotten Son of God. And yet, in that divinity, he became a man for us in our salvation. And in the one person, Jesus Christ holds two unique natures, that of God and that of man. And he holds them together to save us. These two natures dwelled in the person of Jesus Christ, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. He must have shared in our flesh and blood in order to save us as brothers and sisters. But he also needed to be God to fill all in all, that God might have glory and preeminence in all things. We oftentimes talk about Jesus as the the true and better character of the Bible. He is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better David. Here he is the true and better Esther. Esther puts her life on the line, but Jesus doesn't just put his life on the line. He lays his life down. Jesus doesn't just mediate before an earthly authority, but before the king of heaven, the father in heaven himself. Jesus doesn't just symbolize death and resurrection, but experiences them both fully and truly on our behalf. And he doesn't just defeat an earthly enemy, even one who carries all of the signs of being a representative of that snake of old, but he defeats death and Satan himself. What Esther points toward, Jesus is fully. He is God's servant. Seventh, speak briefly about God's people. God does not save us because we are righteous, but because he is merciful. But that doesn't mean that we walk in the ignorance of of what he has called us to be and what he has called us to do. We have, again, a wonderful example here in our story today. The people, it is said, three different times, although the edict that came from Mordecai in chapter 8 made it very clear. In verse 11 of the 8th chapter, It says that the king allows the Jews who are in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Makes it very clear. You can kill everybody and you get their stuff. And we've talked about how much that was worth. The amount of talents of silver that Haman thought he would collect from this and then give over to the king was enormous. There is a lot of plunder here. But three times in the ninth chapter, we read of them killing, destroying, and annihilating and not touching any of the plunder. In verse 10, at the end of verse 10, but they laid no hand on the plunder. At the end of verse 15, they laid no hands on the plunder. The end of verse 16, they laid no hands on the on the plunder. Why is that? Why three times reinforce they didn't lay hands on the plunder? Again, it's because they knew how to be faithful to God in a way that Saul wasn't. 
God called Saul to go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction everything they have. Devote it to destruction. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Saul goes and he destroys the vast majority of it, but he keeps the livestock. And he keeps a king Agag. And Samuel shows up and he says, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ear? Samuel goes on to say to him, why did you not obey, obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? Why did you pounce on the spoil? The people of God here do not. They learn. They realize, as you read through this chapter, how many times do we hear of that reversal that we've talked about so often that God is going to bless them? They don't need to take the spoil. God is blessing them. The reversal is here. The table's turned. This chapter reinforces that several times. Mordecai has ascended. The Jews are now respected. The Jews have peace and security. They were threatened. They would die. But now they have nothing but goodness and peace. God provides for them. Let us be faithful to his word. Let us realize that all good things come from God. And that even though the law sometimes says this is okay to do, certainly doesn't make it okay to do. And more importantly, what the Jews have done here was choose ultimately to be faithful to God over the things of this world. And as God people, how can we do anything but the same? Eighth and last, let us speak of God's power. In the end, the book of Esther is a demonstration of God's power. That the most powerful man in the most powerful nation, with the most powerful edict, could not thwart the purposes of a God who doesn't even bother to show up for the battle. God's power to save his people is without match. Friends, you cannot ever fear the powers of the earth, nor should you long for them. They are fickle, they are ultimately small, and they are ready to topple at any moment. They are but a mere vapor that when the sun comes out, is scattered. Do not fear either that while they might be small and they might be insignificant, you are all the more so. Do not fear that you feel unprotected against their might and their power. For God is on your side. Jesus says this to his small band of disciples in Luke chapter 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that. Good pleasure. Not, you know, your father made a promise a long time ago and he doesn't really want to fulfill it. But I guess he's kind of like stuck now as every dad in here has, always, have, has been at some point in time. You said something, you're like, Oops, now I got to like hold on to that, right? And, and there's a way of thinking that God made these promises and now he's like, oh, well, I guess I'll protect them. I guess I'll protect my people. Even though they're wicked and they're wretched, I guess that I will be for them and not against them because I, I made this promise to Abraham and now I'm kind of stuck. No, Jesus says, it is your father's good pleasure. He longs to give you the kingdom. Don't worry about all the other power that surrounds you. Don't worry that you've got to fight and claw to make sure that you're okay in this world. God will win because he's powerful and mighty and strong and it's his good pleasure to give you something better than this world. 
Remember that God's power is best seen by those with eyes of faith. Today is, of course, Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember that Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, riding on a colt. One of the great moments in which Jesus finally kind of casts off the aura about him and is declaring, I am indeed the king of the Jews. Many of the fulfillments of scripture happen to Jesus, but Jesus goes out of his way here to fulfill scripture, declaring that he is the king. People sing hosannas over him and are cheering him. The crowds are all for him. We are right to remember that. Because it is a stark reminder of how quickly Friday comes. Jesus has every opportunity throughout the course of that week to play the party line, to compromise himself. He has every opportunity to give himself over to the power of the world, to give allegiance to the Jewish authorities and rulers. But he entrusts himself rather to God, not to the cheers of the people, nor the threats of the mighty. And on the cross, dying slowly, when God seemingly couldn't be found, when his presence wasn't felt, when his action wasn't seen, when there weren't great thunderbolts of lightning, when there wasn't great display of power, there were no miracles happening, there was just a man dying. Those wicked and deceitful authorities and rulers look at him and say this, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. That taunt is nothing less than saying, Where is your father? You're dying. You're the son of God. Where's God? If he were here, would he not deliver you? The fact that he's not here, the fact that he is not miraculously bringing you down means that he is not here for you. Interestingly, only a small time later, several verses, Jesus will say famously, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the Jews couldn't see God. The Jewish rulers, the Jewish authorities, the people in power couldn't see God. They had no place in their heads or in their hearts for the power of an unseen God. Friends, Jesus didn't see things that way. You cannot possibly look at the world that way. Because when God isn't present, you don't feel him, you don't see him, You don't know that he's working when it's dark. Nevertheless, the I am is there. Jesus might have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you are never to think for a moment that the father abandoned his son. Or that somehow because Jesus was taking on your punishment, that God, in some way, shape, or form, denied him, or or that Jesus stopped being the beloved son. He never stops being the beloved son. He never stops his union with God. God was with him, and he knew it. 
And for all the right reasons, he takes on all of the wrath that is poured upon him so that you might know the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't side with the crowds. He didn't side with the hecklers. He didn't side with those people who declared, if we can't see him, if we can't hear him, if we don't know of him, he can't be here. Where is your God? Don't side with the crowds. Friends, don't side with the powerful in the world. Don't side with those who promise you the kingdom without a cross. But rather, trust in the power of an unseen God who raised to life again Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for the book of Esther. May it help us to see you by faith, just as Hebrews says, when we cannot see you otherwise. Keep your people faithful to you. Let them persevere in this world that you might show your mighty hand and deliver them on the day of judgment when you come, not on a colt riding into a city, but on the very clouds of heaven in power and in might to deliver your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.